Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is War Council. My name is Caleb Dillon with White Metal Games. I'm Phil Corman with White Metal Games. I'm Denny Franks with White Metal Games. I'm Evan Strong and I'm just visiting. (laughs) (laughs) Evan is an out-of-town guest. He's joining us for a couple days as part of our upcoming business mentoring podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking with him uh, a little bit later on the next show about his visit to White Metal Games, what he learned from it, what what sort of tips and techniques he gleaned from it. Um, And we're going to use that to help um, kick off our mentoring service, which will be coming up this this winter. Um, If you want to stop in for a couple days, learn from the pros, uh, or even just Skype with us and get some business advice for your upcoming um, websites or services, we can do that too. Um, but before we jump into that, we're going to jump into our intro for today. Um, so really, we're just we're just going to talk about some of the things we have coming up in the studio. Um, obviously, Gene Stiller Cult uh, has hit has hit the hit the world and hit it hard. Yeah, really. I mean, we don't generally do meta gaming stuff here. We don't talk about rules, but I, I would say it's been a it's people keep using the word game changer. That's, that's it has what the I potential keep. to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that what people like about it is it's not a, a general dex. It's not like a supplementary codex where it's like, here's a couple of units, here's a couple things. It's yeah. not like the original Cult Mechanicus codex was like, well, it's kind of an army. It's like, this is actually an army. Like, it's a full-on, you could actually use it as a an army. It's got special rules. It's got its own psychics. It's got its own, you know, unique rules for how it operates. Yeah, very true. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we've added that to the Tandem Death Watch Commission. Um, so if you wanted to, let's say, do a Gene Store Cult Army, you can also add that in uh, and use that as the Tandem Commission. Now, just as a reminder, the Tandem Commission is basically a way to save money by getting in at a volume discount normally reserved for high-dollar clients, clients that spend, let's say, over $2,000. So basically, the more people that sign up for this commission, the more you potentially save. Um, now, we are going to be continuing to run these in the future. This um, is going to expire in November 1st. So you only have a few more days to get on this thing. Um, but if this, uh, unfortunately, doesn't work out, we are going to continue to do these in the near future as new supplements come out. Um, so just stay tuned. Go to whitemetalgames.com slash services, or slash commissions, rather, and then look at the bottom for tandem commissions, and you'll see all of our upcoming tandem commissions listed there. Um, in addition, uh, for Thanksgiving this year, we're going to be doing a Thanksgiving. So we're offering 10% off labor on all tanks. Now, labor is a combination of assembly and painting. So, for example, a basic Rhino painted to a silver level or a tabletop standard, we charge about $60 for that. So you'll save $6 off your labor on that. So, for example, if you wanted to bring in five or six tanks, you'll save, you know, five or $6 per tank. So you could save basically as much as a kit. It's like getting mm-hmm. a kit for free. And speaking of, we offer a 25% discount on GW product to all clients. So if you're a client and you're looking to add some tanks to your army, you can buy them through us for 25% off, save 10% on labor. Uh, and we're slow enough right now that we could probably whip these out for you in the next month or so. Definitely. Um, so there's plenty of time, plenty of time to get on this. But we're going to be running that all through Thanksgiving uh, all the way up till the end of November, really. And then we'll have new specials for Christmas. So if you're interested in that, email us at info at whitemetalgames.com. Um, well, I feel like we should spend a little time sort of introducing um, Evan, since uh, he's here today for the for the podcast and that kind of stuff. Just well, now that he looks awkward, we're going to put him on the spot for sure. <laughs> so, Evan, where are you visiting us from? Uh, I'm visiting from McLean, Virginia. Nice. Um, and we're going to be talking about color theory today. Do you know a lot about color theory? I because we hired you basically because you're a source of knowledge for this. Like, yeah. We brought you in for for that specifically. So uh, I consult a color wheel pretty often whenever I'm starting a new project. You sound like the man to talk to then. Um, And we'll be getting to know Evan a lot more on the next podcast. Uh, But for today, he'll be adding his two cents. Really, the whole point of today's podcast is just sort of color theory for the masses. Um, Although there is 
literally schools on color theory that you could spend years studying. Mm-hmm. Uh, this yes. is going to be kind of color theory 101, just the basics, uh, just enough to kind of get you interested. There is plenty of source material on the internet. Um, obviously, you can Google it. Um, some miniature companies do support sort of color theory guides and that kind of thing. So I would encourage you to explore it. Um, but the reality is like, it's a very thick topic. We're just going to be covering the basics today. Um, well, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Anything going on right now in your lives? You're about to head up to, uh, Dennis, you're about to head up to, we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little further, but, uh, mini war gaming, big fan of it. I always watch it, um, whenever I'm at work actually. And, uh, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I, I talked to them probably about a month ago, um, and I'm going to be up there competing against them. I'm going to take a Age of Sigmar Army, maybe two, depending on the time frame I have. Um, now, I feel like the pilgrimage to Winnie Wargaming has almost become kind of a, a thing. It's like I know a lot of people in our area specifically that go up there, they visit, they play for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, I will point out you do need to schedule it in advance because... Oh, yeah, because <laughs> I think it's... I, they said if it was 40K related... They didn't have any for the year. It was already booked up for this year. In fact, I had a few friends that went up there. They kind of went on a road trip, and they got up there, and they're like, no, man, we don't have time. Yeah, you and really have to book an event. They just left. They couldn't play. Yes, <laughs> so it was a, yes. what a, it was a what a waste what a, of trip. Wow. Yeah. Poor planning. There. Yeah, for yeah. sure. People come across the country. The last one I watched, a guy came from England, and there was a guy from Australia. So, mm-hmm. I mean, really? yeah. They must have just been in the area. <laughs> I they can't imagine they traveled 20-something hours in a plane just to play. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's pretty cool that they have literally a service where essentially people travel from all over the world to go play against their players on camera. Yeah. yeah. Seems fun, right? So, oh, yeah. so what is the draw for you is is it kind of like um, the opportunity to be on camera? Is it the opportunity to play against players that have lots of experience? Like these guys literally play probably hundreds of games a year. Yeah. I mean, these are very experienced players. I think it's, uh, to be honest, it's to promote mm-hmm. uh, not only business but the game itself. Uh, I sure. was a 8th edition Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy player first. It was right. the first game I ever learned. I had no idea what any of this was before. Until sure. So you came ago. in late into it then? Yeah, yeah, I came in and then like a month later, end times happened, and all my buddies were like, <laughs> holy crap, you're coming in when everything's changing. Yeah. And then they said, In a big way. Yeah. And then whenever fantasy died, they were like, that's it. And nobody was really given a shot for Age of Sigmar. Mm-hmm. Um, I just came back from Nova Open, was at the tournament, loved it. Yeah. Loved uh, the way that they were setting things up and how the game is actually playing. So I want people to, I'm encouraging people to play. I want to find players. I want to get people to involved with the game. I think Age of Sigmar had a rocky start because of the lack of, of um, uh, the point structure. Point, yeah. Yeah, without the General's Compendium. Now, maybe it was their plan all along to do a General's Compendium. I'm not for sure. It doesn't seem like it was, yeah, though. It doesn't seem no. like it was. It seems like it was more of a band and it kind of came out yeah. right after. So. Um, but that being said, once they did that, players, I think they blossomed very quickly. Like, people wanted to play again. And the actual game, I think, plays pretty fluidly. It's a, it's a fun game. Yeah. The few games I've had. Um, in fact, we played a game, you and I, a few months ago, that we finally got the battle report up about a week ago it took forever um not because you know we were just busy with stuff and we've recently been trying to redo our youtube channel i brought in a friend of mine who's a video editor who's going to help us out launching more videos in the near future um so hopefully you'll be able to see more of those um but um so yeah so people travel all the way up there you're traveling all the way up there when is your actual trip scheduled for uh i'm going to be competing on the 21st of november that's the day that i'm going to be so a couple days for for uh thanksgiving yeah, I'm not sure how long that it'll take before it comes out. So, but uh, look forward to seeing me. Uh, I would, I would think they probably have a lead time of like a month or two. I and mean, they, I think that they're probably like any good video content provider. Like they have to backlog footage. Oh yeah, and they've got to cut it and edit it to make it, mm-hmm. you know, fit. 
but because uh, when you when you watch one of those battles, like I watched, I watched pieces of one the other day. They it was like about a two hour video, but we all know that a game of that size takes hours to play, like mm-hmm. four hours, five mm-hmm. hours, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, so you know they have to sort of streamline it and get it down a little bit. Um, and then you'll be literally having to, I guess, turn around and go right back for Halloween, or not Halloween, for uh, Thanksgiving. It's yeah. weird to be talking about Thanksgiving because it's not even Halloween yet. Yeah. Like we're like four days away from Halloween. Well, they're already playing Christmas music, too. And it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> we haven't even gotten that. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we jump back in, we're going to jump in with, uh, well, we're going to be jumping in on the painting desk, but we're going to be talking about color theory right after this brief word from Frontline Gaming. Hey, guys. PD Pop here from Frontline Gaming. Are you tired of playing tabletop games on the same old foldable table? Do you have to lug around a bulky Roma Battle table terrain set? Looking for a gaming mat to match the theme of your army and wow your friends? Then look no further than the Frontline Gaming and Table Warp Fat Mat series. Our fat mats are durable, waterproof, and come in 6x4 foot, 4x4 foot, and 3x3 foot sizes. With over 25 different images to choose from, we have a fat mat for every tabletop game. Get yours today at FrontlineGaming.org. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump in on the painting desk. Uh, tonight's segment, we're going to be talking about color theory. This is in conjunction with our um, interview with um, our, uh, we have a, a, a color, uh, we have an artist later. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but uh, I think that you're going to find that in combination, the interview and the color theory discussion tonight will, will really, you know, kind of get your brain stirring, kind of get the juices flowing. Um, so this is going to be kind of a color theory 101. Um, we're just going to go through some of the basics of color theory tonight. Uh, I know that a lot of people get intimidated when they think about that. But the reality is you probably use color theory all the time. You probably don't even think about it. If your mother or wife decorates around her home, she's probably got lots of different examples of, of different colors on her walls and her clothing and her whatever. Um, we see examples of it all the time. We just never really ask why. And um, like any, I think, good um, craftsman, Knowing why certain things work together the way they do will help you, lead you to better decisions. Um, so really, tonight we're just going to sort of talk about what color theory is, how it exists, and um, and how we can use it uh, to kind of, um, you know, supplement our painting, make our painting better. Um, so I, I guess the first thing to, to point out would be color theory is, a, they call it theory. Yes. You know, it's it, first off, it's not a hard rule of thumb. Yeah. It is. Uh, it has been... It's a commonly accepted series of practices that have been established over, I'm going to go with thousands of years now. Um, certainly, you know, painters have been using it as far as long as paint has existed. Uh, as soon as they made blue and red and said those look pretty good together, um, that was the birth of color theory. Uh, and since then, we've just been kind of re-examining it time and time again. Uh, of course, you probably got your first lesson on color theory looking at some sort of wheel. Um, and that's uh, a very commonplace uh, thing. So I think that any good discussion of the wheel starts with primary colors. Um, yeah. So the basic colors are red, blue, and uh, green. Yellow. Or blood, blue, and yellow. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so when you look at a wheel, um, basically if you look at a color theory wheel, I should actually have like a link so people can like follow along with this at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these are primary colors um, because they are at the, the, I guess, the three triangles of the wheel. They are completely equally separated from each other. Yes. And in theory, I, I want to say all colors are a combination of these three colors in some varying degree. Yeah. So, for example, um, you know, you can take these three primary colors, mix them up to various increments, and those are how you build other colors. Whereas I think, and I may be wrong here, but black is a combination of all of those equally, and white is a lack of all of those. So it's a, a lack of pigment. Correct. Um, yeah. And then gray is various scales of combination there, there too. 
Um, if, if black is a combination of all colors and those colors can, can be combined to make any color, in theory, I mean, that's really the foundations of it mm-hmm. from there. Yeah. Um, most of the time you see wheels, they're separated into what we call warm colors and cool colors. Um, and warm colors are generally exactly what they sound like. They're warmer colors. They're colors that are we associate with being you know, warm in terms of like their sense of, you know, how, well, I guess the feeling would be the best way to put it maybe, or like, I don't know exactly how to, I guess, describe a warmer or cool color. Um, well, when you think about like, let's say, um, you know, uh, blue, blue is generally considered a cool color. That's I, I, not only because on the color wheel, that's where it's situated. But I guess when I think about cool, I think a blue, I think about it as a cool color. I think about water. I think about ice. I think about things that are commonly associated with cool colors, Whereas red, you you think about things like fire, I suppose, yep. or danger, or that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, a warm or a cool color, it's based on the type of light hitting the object. Okay. So it's not not necessarily... I used to associate, okay, sunlight's yellowish-orange, that must be a warm color. Sure. That's not necessarily true. Um, sun, now, outdoor lighting, like sunlight, is a warm light. So your... Well, light, it's, I mean... You know, not to contrast that, but the actual, it's a, it's hot in terms of like, mm-hmm. in terms of temperature, but it's a cool light because it's a blue light. Like daylight is considered a blue light. So it's kind of a, a cool light by, by mm-hmm. that standard. Um, but depending, so depending on the time of day, it can change. That's a good so point. So when you have like, so say like high noon, mm-hmm. the light, it's going to be brighter. There's mm-hmm. le- the sun is technically closer to you. Than it would be in the evening time, so it's not being desaturated by blue the sky sure. essentially. Um, so you're going to have a warmer light during high noon versus okay. it'll be cooler towards the evening. Now, since we're on daylight and talking about that, I've heard different people and there's different opinions on this, and I, I thought we'd maybe just pull pull people real quick or pull people. Uh, so some people paint under daylight balanced lights. Some people paint under um, incandescent down mm-hmm. balanced lights, tungsten lights, uh, basically just regular light bulbs. Um, generally speaking, daylight, you know, the light, when you look at a daylight balance bulb versus a, an incandescent balance bulb, they're different colors of light. They are literally, one looks bluish, one looks yellowish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the common logic is you paint under daylight balanced lights. Do you guys have a preference there? Uh, I definitely prefer more natural light. Mm-hmm. So, um, I know Val says next to me, he actually has a very cool bluish light. Mm-hmm. So I prefer something brighter, warmer color. Mm-hmm. Um, than, than that yellow, like not too yellow or anything, because then that just blinds it and kills the color. I think the but idea behind the original person who kind of came up with this notion was that if you if you paint under a certain light, it'll look accurate under those lights. So if you paint mm-hmm. like let's say under daylight, when exposed to let's say light from a window, it'll look like the way you intended it to be. Versus like if I paint it under you know by comparison a halogen light, mm-hmm. uh, it'll look different because the light that I was seeing at the time will not be reflective of the light that it's, it is displayed under. Yeah. Now, that's getting pretty picky. Um, I mean, I think for the most part, like, the color out of the bottle is the color out of the bottle. Um, but it, it does, when you get into the fine-tuning of this sort of stuff, that's where those details, I think, matter. Yeah, when you start mixing colors, when you start highlighting and, mm-hmm. and all that, like, it is important. I think as a general rule of thumb, it's probably best to go with what's more common. Sure. If, especially if it's a commission painter, it's probably better to go with something that's, you know, the general light, that source that most people are going to play at, either a mm-hmm. game store or a tournament, uh, that way it just looks the way it, it was when you first envisioned and created it. 
Now, um, one of the things we were talking about, or I've heard about before, is that um, uh, colors, depending on whether they're warm or cool, will either appear closer or further from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, darker or lighter colors will, will appear further or closer from you. So the, the common theory, as far as I know, is that warm colors and dark colors appear closer, whereas light colors and cool colors generally appear further away. Has that been your guys' experience as well? or I think it's... Um... Or do I have that backwards light colors, I think it's light and warm. And warm are closer, closer to you. Okay. Yeah. Warm you kind of find that cool. naturally. And when you highlight, mm-hmm. you're, I mean, if you look at any guide online, they'll, uh, the shade colors tend to be darker yeah. and cooler. Mm-hmm. And then the, um, just like look at a GW wash, those are like cooler colors, I think. And then, um, you know, if you're highlighting red with orange or, uh, a brighter red, sure. That's lighter and warmer. See, I'm glad we had Evan on this thing. He's, he's here to he is our GW rep for the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, based on that, you can select colors if you want certain parts of the model, let's say, to appear closer to you, appear farther mm-hmm. away, um, depending on the way the model's presented. Like, let's say he's holding up a sword or a skull or a, a flaming ball of energy or whatever. The colors you select will help that those portions of the model appear closer. Or farther, it'll help your. Uh, it'll draw the viewer's interest into that part of the model first, mm-hmm. um, because their eye will naturally gravitate towards things that appear closer. I think, mm-hmm. um, and they'll also gravitate towards things that are you know they pop a little bit more. So part of color theory is about intention. It's about yeah. how you want the end product to look. What part of the model you want to pop? What colors you want to pop? Um, I think like um, Harlequins are a really good example of this, like in the Eldar range. Like there, there are so many different colors, but yeah. basically they pick colors specifically because they contrast. They they mm-hmm. are polar opposites, which allows those colors to pop. Kind of in the same way, like if you're, um, you know, we talk about, you know, something only looks bright if something is dark beside it. Otherwise, you don't have a you don't have something to compare against. Right. Yeah. So by comparison, like orange looks oranger next to blue. Because the blue is dark and cool, whereas the orange is red and warm, or reddish or warmish. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those colors, in contrast, they pop. They look stronger. Whereas if I put, like, say, the blue next to, like, a green, like an ocean water, well, I've never looked at the ocean and thought, unless it's, like, a Florida beach or something, like, that really pops. You know, generally, I think about the ocean as, like, this big green-blue <laughs> pond, <laughs> so to speak. I mean... Yeah. But you can, yeah. But if you think about the ocean too, there's like there's green areas. Like you'll have that Caribbean green. Sure. But as you look further out, it gets darker. So you can make it work. Yeah, with you can. Close, uh, colors that are that close to each other on the color wheel. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. the value at that point. Yeah. How dark is that blue versus the Caribbean green? Sure. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about um, what are contrasting colors, and then you know what are harmonious colors and discords, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I guess we'd start with the basics contrasting or opposite yeah. each other. So like, for example, blue and orange or yellow and purple or, um, red and green, red and green. So, um, these colors are considered complementary colors. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've, I think that some people get confused with complementary and contrasting. Um, it, it's, I think they're the same. I mean, basically there are two different words to describe the same basic thing. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. They so, complement because they are so they complement because they are contrasting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which can be, it can it, in the beginning, for me, that was very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when you hear those terms, they can be used analogously, like either one works fine. 
So um, we select colors that way because they pop against each other. Now, um, as far as I know, um, those colors are also considered to be in harmony um, because they are like that. But then you've got the colors beside each other on the wheel. And these are, you know, essentially these colors sort of are close enough they kind of blend in together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, if you think about like a fall, well, catalog, I suppose. Like you see a lot of reds and browns and oranges on literally every page. Mm -hmm. Um, or you think about like a leaf that falls off a tree and it's got those nice reds, browns, rich oranges, those kind of things. Like that's a, a very good example of a color harmony. If there was blue in the middle of the leaf, it'd look kind of weird, but it would contrast. Whereas those colors are actually in harmony with each other. I mean, I think, I think I'm right there. Is that basically right? That sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, whereas a discord, um, is kind of the opposite of that. Like to use the leaf example, um, if a blue, if a color is completely op, not completely opposite, not 100% polar opposite, but I guess kind of off opposite. Like if, if, if red and green contrast, uh, then I suppose blue and green discord or blue and purple, we'll use green and purple. We were talking about that earlier. Green and purple are not actually contrasting colors. They're not opposite each other on the wheel. Right. They're actually discords of each other. They're vastly opposite. They're in weirder places on the wheel. They're they're removed from the contrasting mm-hmm. colors. They're removed from being opposite each other. So because of that, they actually kind of work against each other. But in a way, that kind of helps too. That kind of helps to, to pop them a little bit. I mean, that's basically, I'm just talking to myself yeah. now. <laughs> now I'm just literally on a soapbox. <laughs> and I will roar taxes as well. Um, so I was considering... Um color theory is really great for uh, sci-fi or fantasy table miniatures but if you're thinking about people who do like historic Mm -hmm. and camouflage those are things that are you know they they have a real life purpose of we want to blend in or we want to look like that's actually a really good example so um so like camo just, is a really good example of like I mean, most camo, not like digital urban camo, but uh-huh. generally speaking, camo is like a good example of a harmony for mm-hmm. the most part. It all blends in together. I mean, unless you're doing I some sort of wacky. I want to know who, where I'm at. Yeah, if I'm getting shot. I don't want to be hidden. Well, then, what, here's another thing we can talk about that for a second. It's interesting. Like when you think about like when you ever see urban camo, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's got it's blue basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like blue, grays, blues, blues yeah. and grays. Mm-hmm. And you think about why why did they select that concrete? Concrete. Like, you know, you know, it's got kind of a bluish tinge to it, basically. So if I was to, like, let's say, look across the street and see, like, a building, concrete looks kind of blue-gray to me. So that makes perfect sense why that would be an urban camo. But the first time I saw that, I was like, what? That won't work. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. But in actuality, no, it makes perfect sense. Like, when you look at armor in general, sometimes you when you look up close, you mm-hmm. see it and you're like, well, why is that there? But whenever you take a step back, like German camo sure. back in World War II, there were some where it was it had some strange color schemes and you thought, well, that won't work. But then when you put it against a backdrop, right. it blended right in. Right. When you stand up close to it, it doesn't look right. But when you move it to a distance, because mm-hmm. you think about like if you're looking through a forest, like you can see what's close to you. But if I look at something 100 feet away or even farther, it's just blurs of color. I mean, my eyes can't differentiate what those shapes are, mm-hmm. so my eyes just sort of go, eh, it's about like that. And then it just tells me, all right, well, that's about it. So, um, Well, uh, since we're talking about armor or we're talking about metals, why don't we talk about that? Because Evan very accurately pointed out that metals are not on the color wheel. You don't see silver or gold or that kind of stuff on there. So um, how do metals figure into color theory? 
Um, I guess people, we use metals a lot in painting. Obviously, everything we paint has a gun or a sword or a shield or something. Yeah. So um, I, I think I would, again, separate colors based on warm and cold. Like, generally, probably, um, metals like we think of steel, iron, those are cold colors. Mm-hmm. Whereas gold, brass, those are pretty warm colors. So would we lump those into the same general categories? Would we like think about brass treat it like orange maybe i think warm and cool is a good way to look at it uh i painted some models that were primarily red and Mm -hmm. to get a better balance i washed the silver metal actually with a blue wash Mm -hmm. so it would bring more balance to the the miniature as a whole now could you do it almost the exact opposite way uh for example whenever i look at a miniature depending on what i'm painting i kind of go with what do i want to feel for this army or what do I want to feel for this miniature? Sure. So I, if I know that skeletons are, I mean, there's not a lot of blood flow. There's not a lot of life mm-hmm. in them. So do I want to maybe do more blues as washes or maybe just colder colors in general if I'm trying to just convey a, a feeling or or just a theme? I think, and Philip made this point at some point, and I think this is absolutely true, is that you're, even if you don't know it, your brain is perceiving it. So, like, for example, there's a, there's a guy online he, he, on YouTube, he's called Snauzer Face Minis, and he taught me a lot about shadowing. And the whole point there is that you work colors into your shadows to make them richer. Mm-hmm. And even if they're not the primary colors you see when you first look at the model, they're there. They're buried deep in the recesses. And so your brain kind of picks that up, and that does influence the way you feel about the model. So he was painting, in one example, he was painting a troll, which was very, very blue. But he worked in these very red pigments and washes into the model Mm -hmm. to help to sort of i wouldn't say warm it up but to contrast for one thing Mm -hmm. but also to work some warm colors into the shadows because the warm contrasted with the cold i mean sometimes you're looking for a warm cold contrast as opposed to just a a discriminate color contrast yeah Um, i think i've seen him uh shade sort of like he was the primary color was like a bone white mm -hmm. and he worked in like olive greens and sort of shadows for that well, this is something, I mean, Philip, you can talk more to this because Philip Val's kind of been your painting partner the last couple months. Yeah. But one of the things that I, I, I on the, one of the few things I agree with him on when it comes to this sort of stuff is that, you know, something can be painted anything. We think about a skull, to use that example, as being white or bone colored, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, in theory, in a painting, it could be shades of blue or shades of red or, or whatever. And we would accept that as a stylistic choice the artist made. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, In particular, when we use object source lighting, for example, let's say someone's holding a torch. If the red light from the torch splashed onto the skull, we wouldn't wouldn't second guess that. We would look at that and say, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, one of my favorite armies from many, many years ago was done all in shades of green. And they were humans riding on horseback. So the humans were shades of green. The horses were shades of green. And when you think about it in terms of, like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Horses aren't green. But for an army to look, the way it looked, it actually looked great together. Because they had made a very stylistic choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I think one of one of Val's things that he's taught me so far is that things don't have to be what they appear to be. Like, right. you know, it, this does not have to be... Bones do not have to be bone-colored. Flames do not have to be red. Like, parchment does not have to be parchment-colored or whatever. Right. Like, you can, you can break the rules if you are doing it with purpose. Exactly. Um, yeah. So. Um, one thing to, to point out, you guys have mentioned, um, like, warm and cool colors contrasting mm-hmm. each other. In general, like almost any, well, in nature, really, uh, when you have a warm color, let's say 
uh, let's take like a leaf for example. It's a natural green. It's a warm green. Its shadow is going to be cool. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural way of things. So like, colors are always going to be the the mid tone color. If it's warm, its shadow will be cool. Um, same with its highlight will be cool. So it's does that work the at, opposite way too? If yeah, something if it's is a cool mid tone, shadow, will be, shadow warm. will be warm. Yeah. So it's it's a little difficult to, i'm still trying to grasp all of it mm-hmm. myself but those are things that val's been teaching me um and it works in like the example you just said with schnauzer face minis like that's what he was doing he was using a cool or he was actually using a warm red in the shadows mm-hmm. to complement the blue the cooler blue mid-tone on the skin so that's just a nice general rule of thumb that actually works very well and will help now, I think we should take just a second, even though this isn't exactly color theory, but um, on a lot of websites, Reaper's a really good example of this. Reaper sells their, their, mini, their paints in triads. They, paint, they sell them like in three colors, and essentially they are a, a base, a shadow, and a highlight. So the idea being if your base color is, let's say, um, blue, your highlight color may be like a pale blue and your shadow color may be like a purple blue or something like that. And the whole idea there is that you, you create a natural triad of color like there's nothing is ever as flat as is it appears to be at first blue is not blue blue is layers of blue it's high blues mm-hmm. low blues that kind of thing so when you think about like a harmony color um, when you think about harmonies or colors that are naturally beside each other on the color wheel that's i think kind of partially what they're there for so when we talk about something like a mid-tone what we're saying is really like that's i guess when you look at a miniature if you say like uh, we'll use a blue space marine if I say blue, what I'm really saying is the midtones blue. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the shadow will be slightly different or darker, and the highlight will be slightly lighter. Right. So when I say blue, it's like when I say if I, I use those two, those terms, you know, inner the same. They're the same. Like the midtone is the primary color we see when we see the model. Yes. Like if I looked at like I don't know a horse, like brown may be the midtone, but a deep burgundy red may be the shadow. And a lighter orange may be a highlight. Uh, and those colors together work in harmony. Now, if I wanted to create a richer shadow, is what we're saying here, is we would use like a, a cool shadow, like a bluish shadow or, or black yeah, with a hint yeah. of cold color or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, I, I guess what can we take from all this is that, you it's know, complicated. It is. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not confused right now, I've talked to Val about this for hours mm. trying to understand this. It's a big concepts. topic. It's, it's huge. Uh, so I, I, let's break this down. What if we if we were going to give people some quick, simple tips mm. for color theory? What would those quick, simple tips be? Maybe um, colors op- each, opposite each other contrast mm-hmm. and therefore are complementary. So yes. if you print out a color wheel, the colors directly opposite each other will generally look good together. When I look at this color wheel and I'm pointing at something on a podcast uh you can see if you look at the red primary and you follow up the side to the yellow orange those are kind of natural highlight colors and if you that's go true. to yeah. the left of the red those can be seen as shades i think that's, and that's you could follow true. the you could follow the um you know you could do that for the blues and the maybe the yellow greens you could follow yellow to highlight and down towards the blues for I would good agree with shadows. that. I think that's pretty good advice overall. I would say that use the color wheel to help pick your highlight, midtone, and shadow. Find three colors adjacent on the color wheel, and that's basically where you should shadow from. Mm-hmm. Now, the color wheel is not going to give you everything. Like, for example, the reds on a color wheel are just going to say red, and there's a bajillion reds out there. Right. But we know, for example, a darker red is a shadow to a lighter red, et cetera, et cetera. So that might be a good 
ideas like look for your harmonies on your color we'll look for colors closer together and those colors beside each other will create natural shadows and highlights based on their proximity to each other mm-hmm. generally. I, I don't know if this is color theory but i think you should try to limit them um to get a good effect you should try to limit the number of colors that you're using because we talked about the minimal clown, palettes yeah the mm-hmm. clown car mini yeah if you have too many colors on there it can look really busy and if that's not the effect you're going for, it can detract from the model you're painting. I would say that's good advice. And we really we haven't really even talked about like, you know, when we talk about like we talked about intention briefly, but we didn't even talk about this idea. And let's touch on it very briefly. Would be um, that the the theory is that when you mix in, one Philip can talk about this more, is that when you mix in colors opposite each other. You will. Um, you you told me that you desaturate the colors. They'll cancel each other out. Like a yeah. red or a green mixed together will cancel itself out. Right. Um, yeah. Now we can use that to our advantage. Like for example, if we have a red that we like, but we want to desaturate it, we don't want it to strong. Mm-hmm. By mixing in the opposite color, that will tone it down. Yeah. So as it, like let's say you know generally speaking, people probably think I'll mix black with that. But that's actually not always the best way to go. It's a very aggressive approach. Right. If you want to do it more subtly, um, then you would then the opposite or complementary color would mm-hmm. be the better way to do it. If you want that like very fast and I just want to desaturate as quickly as possible, then black is an okay route to go. Mm-hmm. And I do that. But yes, yeah, a subtle approach would be to the opposite. Now, what about the opposite? What about enhancing the saturation of color if I want it to be more vibrant? Well, that's it. Gets a little confusing at that point. So because the saturation and desaturation you can desaturate a red by making it by adding white mm-hmm. by making it pinkish or by adding white and making it pinkish you're actually desaturating that red you're not making it more vibrant mm-hmm. you're um desaturating a color is taking it away from its original value this is a bit this is the simplest way i can explain no, it. So that, that makes blue sense. is the most saturated that blue is going to be right any white or black add to that's going to start to desaturate it once you do that it's it's impossible to bring it back to that original blue. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is that really? No, that, that, I think okay. that makes perfect sense. So, would you just do the opposite? Just trick it to think that it's more bright than it is by making the recesses darker. Yeah, I think that's instead, that's instead of trying mm-hmm. to make it brighter, mm-hmm. make everything a little darker. That way, that that color pops out more. I think that makes perfect sense. Because, so for example, using the ultramarine blue example, you would mix in a little of the. You'd have your ultramarine blue as your base, your midtone, but then for your shadow, work in a little bit of like, a, let's say, a red into the into the same mix, and then use that as your shadow color. So that'll be a desaturated version of that color, which then, when compared beside your original color, it will naturally look like uh, the shadow for that color. And what's even cooler about that is, or more interesting, I, I shouldn't use the word cool on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> it can be confusing, but what's more interesting about that is by adding in that contrasting color, uh, you're actually working in the contrasting color, which will, by default, be the natural shadow color. Because as we talked about just a few minutes ago, if something is warm, then its shadow is cool. So by adding the contrasting color, which naturally is the contrasting color, that will, in fact, create the perfect natural shadow for that. I mean, I think that theory, that yeah. logic follows. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think I think you're, Phillips right. It's it's a lot. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a lot. Um, but uh, I think that generally, this kind of gives you the tip of the iceberg. Like it, you at least have somewhere to start with. Yeah. So uh, I guess I would say print out a color wheel, 
Uh, and then maybe read a few articles online too, just to get some basic sure. sense of it. Experiment, yeah, sure. Um, one of the things I've, I've done in the past is that I'll, um, when I find color combinations I like, and I was showing Evan this this morning, is that I kind of write myself recipe cards. So that years later when I go back, and this is useful for us as a miniature commission company because it allows us to, you know, if someone contacts me about a project from four years ago, well, I might not remember the exact colors I used. So by writing those down and keeping those organized on my computer in a safe place, literally like, you know, referencing them, I, I can later go back, use the exact colors or find something close there too. Um, and also by default, I can improve on that. I can, now that I've learned um, this amazing color theory lecture today, I can now take those lessons and I can apply those to my uh, my retrofitted minis in, in reverse and kind of get better over time. So anyway, so I think that that's about uh, that's about the basics of it. Um, and um, certainly we welcome um, other people's opinions on this. I'm sure um, there are color theorists rolling over in the grave right now <laughs> yeah, at, our, sure. at our terrible, <laughs> terrible explanation. But... Um, but yeah, keep it simple. Um, use the wheel to your advantage and uh, experiment. I think those are all good tips. So I also wanted to bring something um, up that we talked about earlier, and I'm not sure if you guys had the same issue I've had. Uh, we were talking about oh, when you're painting in light, like what kind of light source, natural light, sure. um, artificial light, um, displaying your artwork. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons I mentioned that is because if I painted under, let's say, a, a halogen light, or that's a bad example, a tungsten light, which is an incandescent bulb. It's a warm bulb. Uh, it's literally a yellowish bulb. And I put that under a daylight balanced light. It's going to look different. I mean, it, it just is. So um, when we went to Nova about two months ago, I think their cases had daylight balanced light. It was, I believe so, yeah. It was cool light. It was a bluish light. So, um, and I would, I would like to think that most competitions that are serious do, uh, that they anything like that is, is meant to be displayed but it's probably worth checking yeah. if you're going to be like competing somewhere right. you want to check well the reason i bring that up is and i've had this happen some of the miniatures i have at the hobby shop i leave them there for people to use um i've noticed there you they use fluorescent bulbs in the do you think they fade case. the colors it's destroyed my models some of my models so if you're going to display your models and you put a lot of time in you might want to look into not using fluorescent or see if there's another light bulb you can You're saying use. saying the, the light actually yeah. affects the paint? It actually turned paint. my models from a white to a yellow. And when I took it out and I flipped the model over, you could tell. And I'm like, holy crap. And it didn't take that long. Maybe like a couple months. And it yeah. destroyed a model. Natural sunlight will do that too. You can't leave... You, if you leave miniatures in the windowsill, like the natural sunlight will fade. I mean, you, I'm sure you've seen that on stickers for like bumper cars, for example. Right. You'll see the colors faded over time. That will happen to your miniatures, and even sealing them will help prevent it. But it doesn't; it's not immune to the effects. So, um, yeah, stay away from natural sunlight. <laughs> Makes sense. Keep it a little bit in a darker area, and just use a natural daylight bulb or whatever color you're, you know, you want to present it under. Um, we were talking about this earlier. Like, if we do commission armies, the best thing to maybe think about is where is that army being presented? If it's in a normal store, you're going to have general daylight bulbs usually. Um, so maybe it's best to paint under that. That way the army is consistent throughout, basically. When, yeah. I, when they're playing it versus when you're sending, we're sending photograph or photographs of you know, the progress of it, it looks the same. Makes perfect sense. Um, okay. Well, um, we're going to take, uh, I think we're going to round this up because we've uh, got other stuff to talk about today on the podcast. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we jump back in, we're going to jump in with our service spotlight and talk briefly about our display board page. And we'll be right back after this. 
Hey guys, it's Caleb with War Council. Are you a purveyor of stuff? Are you an entrepreneur with something to preneur? Do you sell things related to tabletop gaming, painting, or some other aspect of the miniatures hobby? Would you like to advertise to like at least three listeners a show? Then you've come to the right place. War Council has a limited number of sponsorship slots available. Each slot guarantees you a banner ad on the White Metal Games website, and we're at like 300 likes on Facebook right now, so clearly at least 300 people can be bothered to click the like button at some point in time in their lives. For $20 a month, we'll promote you and your products on the show. For $10 more, you can have an entire 30-second commercial, like this one, only, you know, better and more relevant and stuff. Email us at info at for more information, and until you do, put your minis where your mouth is. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump into Service Spotlight tonight. We're going to talk briefly about our display board page. Um, so um, recently we've been working on a few display board projects, and Philip can speak certainly to this quite a bit. He's been involved intimately with both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but display boards are a service that we're now offering to clients. You can find it on our webpage at winebottlegames.com slash services slash display boards. The same page for display boards also has prices for demo boards. If you're a, a game store owner, owner looking to demo some new products and new games um, you can also find squad displays on there if you're not looking to display your whole army but just to display a few figures mm-hmm. yeah. elite units plants for characters that kind of thing um, plenty of options there um, one of the things we learned recently at the nova convention is that there's lots of people who everyone has to display their army mm-hmm. but yeah. most people don't put as much time into their boards as they do their army of course um, which can, frankly, kind of kill the effect. I mean, you spend a lot of time working on your army, and then you don't spend as much time displaying it well. It's sort of like spending a whole day baking a cake and then, you know, putting it under a box. It's like it's not really like yeah, you the know, frosting is just like right. It's not side, really, you yeah. <laughs> so you know, one of the ways we're trying to help out clients with that is we released a display board page. The pricing ranges based on the side of the board and the amount of detail on the level. You want to go into the board. Essentially, the more time we spend on the board, the more expensive it gets. But um, really, I mean, this is a more premium product than I think most clients are used to. Um, yeah, for sure. But with that premium, see, you get a high-end, you know, uh, finish. Like you get a, a board that is very well put together, very, very uh, clean, nice-looking, sturdy, well put yeah. together, lots of details, and it's it's congruent to your army. If your army has 50 miniatures, we slot out 50 miniatures so that every model has a home and it looks like they're part of their environment as opposed to setting on top of their environment. Yeah. Um, so do you have any sort of, uh, I guess, general like look back like now that the display board page is, <laughs> is up there? Like, I mean, fun. we want to yeah. do more of these, obviously. Um, but they are a premium product, which means that they, yeah. they only, they're really, they are intended for clients that are looking to display their models properly. I mean, anybody that wants to... Now, to be fair, you could do a demo board as a display board. There's nothing stopping you. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, demo boards are basically flat versions of display boards, which are much less pricey. But, I mean, there's lots of sources out there for making your own demo boards. The whole reason to go with us for display boards is that we will take the time to create a unique environment, a narrative environment for your army, so that it looks like it's part of the environment as opposed to just, like, being, yeah. like, anywhere. Yeah. You know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the Krieg is a great example, and that's probably that's on the page. You right. can see, like, that army was taken from the beginning stages. We built the army, 
we built the board alongside of the it. The bases so everything... were made to match exactly. Yeah, if if a certain model stood on a portion of the board that was more snowy, that mm-hmm. base got more snow and vice versa. The colors of the buildings were also reflected in the mm-hmm. miniatures themselves. So everything right. tied together as a one cohesive. Yeah. So now obviously the the perfect storm would be you do the army at the same time as your display board. Yes. Um, that would be like the, the triquetra, like army, display board, and something else apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the, tri- the, 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 the duo, I suppose. Um, but for those clients that are interested in that, that service page is available. Look under services, display boards. You can find all of our pricing there. Um, pricing goes down based on the smaller boards, like squad boards, and goes up for more detailed boards. The Krieg board, we consider this to be a good example of a gold-level board. About 100 hours went into the board. A couple hundred dollars worth of materials went into the board. Yeah. So, um, you know, it takes longer than you think. In fact, we've it takes longer than an army in many cases. It did, yeah. Yeah. Way longer. Yeah. Probably three times longer. Yeah. The army was the easier of the two. <laughs> yeah. Um, it wasn't a small army. It no, it was not. It had, yeah. yeah. It was a big army. So think about that. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, be sure to check it out. If you're interested in setting up that commission, email us at info at whitemetalgames.com. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to jump in with our... Um, Tips on technique tonight, we're going to be interviewing a gamer, uh, specifically a painter from Frontline Games, about his unique circumstances, and we'll be right back after this. Need a model assembled or painted but no money to spare? White Metal Games is now offering trade-ins. Send us pictures of your old models, bits, boxes, even new kits. Make us an offer we can't refuse. Don't like negotiating and haggling? White Metal Games also offers consignment services. You can send us your old models, books, games to sell... We sell them through our eBay store, and you pocket 55% of the sales price. You don't have to worry about eBay fees, PayPal fees, shipping fees. There's no crazy percentages, just easy money. Contact us at info at whitemetalgames.com today. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump into tips on technique tonight, and tonight we have a very, very special guest. Um, The guest is joining us all the way from the West Coast, from California, the sunny state, Um, and he is a unique painter. Well, I'm actually going to let him sort of tell you about it, but he's definitely a painter unlike any other I've ever, ever had on the show and ever had the pleasure of talking to, so I'm going to welcome Brandon Miner to the show. Hello. (laughs) So, Brandon, what specifically, what part of California are you in out there? Um, I am in downtown San Diego, so I live in the uh, second tallest building, actually, of downtown. It's pretty awesome. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, I've literally spent almost no time in California, um, but I hear it's great. You are missing out. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you are a painter with Frontline Gaming. Yeah. Um, and you're a commission artist with them, so you do a lot of their commission work. Uh, you, you paint for literally probably hundreds of clients a year. Yeah, a lot of clients. I mean, it's all I do. It's full-time work. So. Great. So a little bit before we get into too specifically into your unique circumstances, um, what got you into the hobby in the first place? Like, how did you get introduced to, I guess, wargaming in general, but maybe specifically what was your first figures you painted? And, uh, like, what got you into gaming? Sure. Um, I liked comic books, and there was a little comic book shop in the town that I was growing up in. And we, my little brother and I would go there, and we noticed some models on the wall, and it was 40K and fantasy stuff. Had no idea that it was um, a game. We just both picked up a box and built them and painted them and thought it was cool. And that's kind of what it started from. Had you I'd done any done models like before model that? Like, before, you know? Yeah, okay, so that makes sense. So yeah. you'd done some modeling before, uh, yeah. and then you just saw these kind of fantasy miniatures. Were you into fantasy as a kid? Like... I don't know, watch the kind of all the shows and that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I was never really that much of a nerd until I picked up Warhammer. 
Oh, okay, nice. So, um, what about what about the initial box? Like, what was your first box? I guess. Um, Necrons. Nice. Okay, that's a great way to get into it. I mean, they're a pretty simple color scheme. It was the Raiders, the metal ones. Yeah, sure, the old school ones. Yeah. Um, this was back in. Um, how, so, how old were you when this happened? So it was two thousand. So oh, okay. I think I was so sixteen 15, years ago. Sixteen, something like that. All right, nice. Um, so you've been in the hobby for at least that long, 15, 16 years, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you still have those Necrons, just out of curiosity? No, unfortunately, I sell pretty much everything that I paint. Sure, paint for hire. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. in exactly the same way. I, I generally don't have a very small collection because almost everything gets sold. So I'm with you. So, uh, well, is your brother still painting? Does he still paint in hobby too? No, he's a filmmaker now. So oh, that's awesome. Great. He does his own thing in Hollywood. He's in the right place for it. Um, okay, cool. So uh, he went off and did Hollywood stuff. You kept painting. Um, so from there, did you just keep refining your technique? Did you learn from locals? Did you join the local game scene? Do you play? Yeah, so I always liked playing, and I and I actually liked that more than the building and painting side. Okay. But, you know, then, you know, as a kid, you're growing up, you get girlfriends. It's not cool to play toys. So I would always <laughs> just paint on the side. Sure, sure. And, like a hidden uh, hobby. Painting kept me into the hobby. Okay. Was the side. Nice. So, um, so that kind of leads us up to today. So you've been you were painting kind of off and on throughout the years, and then what led you to frontline gaming? Like, what? How did you make the leap from being a casual player, casual painter, to deciding to work for arguably, certainly one of our sponsors and one of the larger gaming companies there is? Yeah. So um, I first started doing the commission work when. I was hanging out at a uh, games workshop store in Denver, Colorado. Okay. And the manager, he was like, he just he just told me, you need to commission paint. You could actually make some money. Oh, cool. So he and, liked your uh, work. Nice. So that's kind of what got it started. And I just had some local guys that I was doing it for. And it and it definitely did not pay because I did not know how to build people back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've gotten better at that for sure. Now, one of the things I've been impressed with speaking with you on and off is your speed. You are, as far as I can tell, the fastest painter I've ever met. Um, we were talking about a commission earlier, which is about, it's a larger commission, it's an ogre commission, and in that particular case, you're going to finish those models in the better part of three or four days, which is just unbelievable. Um, were you always that fast, or is that something you just refined over time? Um, I think I, I've, I've been working on the speed. Sure. Um, how I learned how to paint kind of went into the speed itself. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll have to talk about that part later. Yeah, but, well, um, we, I mean, we're going to jump into it in just a second. Yeah. But um, in fact, we'll just use that as a segue into it. So I think one of the things that's unique about you, if people look at your work, you're obviously a good painter. But one of the things that's really unique about you is you have a particular condition that makes you, I mean, you're colorblind, basically. That's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So just to be 100% clear, because I want our listeners that are listening, I don't want them to misunderstand me. We are saying you are colorblind. You are unable to see color the way most people see color red blue green the whole the whole chagrin correct so if i was to give you an apple what color would that apple look like to you is it a granny smith or a red delicious good question let's go with red delicious (laughs) um it's gonna look like red okay but so red to you like so how do you see like why don't we just dig into it for a minute because i the when i first heard about a colorblind painter i definitely did not I, I did believe it because I've played with blind gamers before and lost. Frankly, I had a, I played against a blind uh, fantasy player who just knocked the shit out of me, and uh, he could visualize things in his mind. So when I heard about a blind painter or a colorblind painter, rather, uh, it's not the craziest thing I've heard, but it's up there. 
So how, how do you actually perceive color? Um, I, it's, it is kind of difficult to describe it. Um, okay. But for the most part, from what I understand, I just don't see it the same way you do. Okay. I'm in more or less a grayscale. I sure. have, um, what the doctor said, it's like a mutation okay. of the cones that reflect the light. Okay. And um, so I just don't see color. So but is I it see- just as much depth, if not more, than other people? So it's kind of like you see, like in grayscale, maybe like a black and white movie, kind of. Yeah, I would say it's a lot less intense because when you watch a black and white movie and you see a lady wearing a dress, you don't know it's a red dress. But if I were to see it in real life, I'd know it was a red dress. So would that go to say that if I was to like lay out a palette of colors, like let's say on the, on the palette I put blue, red, and green? you'd be able to discern those based on, without knowing what they are, without seeing the labels, you could tell me that's red, that's blue, that's green? Um, in most cases, yes. That's amazing. So yeah, I call it the Crayola box is what I've uh, learned to just kind of memorize is that basic 64 colors of the Crayola crayon box. So. Okay. So you look at a couple different colors side by side. Uh, if you were to look at a Crayola box, for example, without looking at the actual labels, you could tell based on, I guess, the depth or volume of color, what color it is? Yeah, for the most part. So how does that work in regards to a solid color? Like, let's say we have purple, but there's like 10 different shades of it. So I have to go with the basic, most garden variety purple. Okay. So if the bottle says purple, that's the one I'm going to, you know, understand as purple. If you start blending anything into it, I'm at a loss. Okay. So does that mean that you generally work within one range of colors, like one range of paints, like let's say GW paint? Uh, that's, that is kind of funny because, um, yeah, most of the paints I use are, um, Vallejo now. Okay. But it's because I have a chart in front of me that shows me, um, the conversion from GW to Vallejo. Okay. And the only reason for that is because I'm not a big fan of the, the newest GW stuff. Okay. Well, is, is there a reason for that specifically, or is it not to, like, badmouth GW, but do you not like the consistency of the paint or the price or the color or? Just when when it was, like, 75 colors, something like that, uh-huh. the paint was awesome. But the more they add layer paints and everything like that, I, I'm just not a big fan of how thin it all is at this point. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so um, you just find the consistency of Vallejo is just closer to what you like. Yes. All right, great. So um, when you first... uh, Okay, so you've been working with that condition, I'm going to guess, your whole life. You've always been colorblind? Yes. Okay. So clearly it hasn't, you know, it hasn't stopped you from pursuing it. I mean, you you were painting, obviously, when you were much, much younger, and now as a grown man you continue to do this. So what took you from there to, let's say, um, working for Frontline? Um, Let's see. So I was just painting for people as much as I could and do little commissions here and there. Sure. I started a studio, um, I don't know, I'd say six years ago called uh, Shades of Grey Painting. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and this is before I had ever heard of that, that book. <laughs> so just to back up for a second, when you were at the GW store in Colorado and the owner or the, the franchise manager or whatever had said, you know, he liked your work, he suggested you, you start doing commissions. Why don't we back up a second? Did you start doing commissions for locals at that point? Yes. And absolutely. what was there? Did you were you upfront with them? Like, hey guys, by the way, I'm colorblind. It's kind of been the gimmick for for since the beginning. People oh, okay. just think it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in some ways, like you said, like a, like a gimmick. It's kind of like, oh, that's that's kind of is, that's interesting. Did um, what did they? What is their initial reaction to that? 
Um, a lot of the time, people don't believe me. Really? So, um, and yeah, that's that's okay if they don't want to believe me. Was there ever <laughs> but, a time uh, where you feel like it hurt your business? Like someone wouldn't take a wouldn't offer you a commission because of that? No, I I don't think so. I think once they see the work, they're happy with choosing me. So. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Um, so you started doing some local commissions, and then um, you you said you you told me off air that you used to live out in California. So were you looking to get back to California, and the commission painting was kind of a bridge for that? Yeah. So my wife and I are both from Southern California, and it's expensive to live here, and it's really expensive to move here, especially if you don't have a job. Sure. So um, the idea was for me to build up the commission business enough to where I could be anywhere and do it. So I needed enough clients and a steady enough income to, to prove that we could do it. So I did commission painting full-time for about a year and a half to two years before we knew we could just jump and, and uh, move here. Sure. So that's, that's what we did. So you had your service, Shades of Grey Painting. You were working at it actively. Uh, and then from there, now that you had that business built up, that you were comfortable, you were making a steady level of income, you felt comfortable enough to move. So you moved back to California. Um, so I actually started working for Frontline Gaming about six months into becoming a uh, commission painter. Okay. So this is before I moved to California, and I heard about them just listening to uh, Signals from the Frontline podcast. Sure, sure. And, they, and Jason was on saying they needed commission painters. I emailed them and got work within five days. That's great. So um, it was basically kind of subcontract work that they – um, you could do from where you were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do have a few artists that are, you know, they're out of town, but um, sure, they have uh, been vetted enough and have proved themselves to be trustworthy, and and uh, it's turned out to be a pretty good way of doing business. So, what made you decide to um, actually move out to California, just so you could be closer to the action, or so you got tired of mailing models back and forth, maybe? A little bit of that. Um, we, my wife and I went to the LVO, and sure, Las we Vegas hung Oval. out with uh, Frankie and Reese. Sure, and they just kept telling us we have to move. We have to move back <laughs> to California. So my wife is like, "Well, if we have people that want us there, let's just do it." <laughs> so, so that was really it. What does your wife, if you don't mind me asking, what does your wife do for a living that she was so able to move? Um, she was a retail manager, and okay. there was, and it just she wasn't liking it. And, oh, okay. Uh, so she she left it and she got a job here. So time so, for a change. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Great. So um, let's. Um, I guess when you first talked to Reese uh, at Frontline, was it the same kind of impact that you had with the clients when you announced to him like, "Hey, I, I'm colorblind. I don't see color the same way you do." Was there ever like, I guess, were they blown away? Were they surprised? Or was it never an issue at all? I didn't actually tell them until about six months of working with them. Okay, so at that My point there was, was enough that they would think that I'd be limited. Sure. So I didn't. I didn't want them to think that because you know at the that point I had only met them once before at a convention. Sure, sure. And so like you know I wanted to work for them. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Like you, you don't want it to seem. Um, you don't want there to be any sort of like stigma hanging over you when you when you apply for the job. I get it. So, um, so you moved out there, you worked with him full time and you've been doing that since then. Um, so let's talk about the level of work because obviously with the colorblind, I mean, there are, there has to be some limitations. I mean, essentially, um, my, my guess would be 
you obviously read a lot about painting, you study painting, you've learned a lot of painting. Have you found there's certain things you can do or can't do specifically that other painters that see color can do? And, and I guess otherwise, can you also do some things better than we can do that when we see color? Like, for example, I don't know, is, is blending simpler or is shading simpler or that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, so how I originally had started was um, back in the day, White Dwarf magazines actually had pretty decent painting tutorials. Like all the master class stuff was in the White Dwarf magazine. Yeah, they were pretty comprehensive. So, yeah, so I actually clipped out all of the painting guides for, I don't know, 10 years worth of uh, White Dwarfs, and I made a binder, and I organized it by color. So if I wanted to do red, I would just flip it open to the book and see which red I felt worked the best, and I just kind of copied. Nice. And that was how I learned how to paint for a long time. Since then, I don't I don't use the binder. Um, I just make it up as I go at this point. But um, as far as my limitations, limitations are only I have to wait for someone to tell me what colors I'm looking at. <laughs> oh, okay. So if my wife's not home, I'll, I'll sometimes not try something new until I can you know tell her this is what I'm trying to do. What colors should I get started with? <laughs> um, is there ever a time where you have? Um... I guess tried something without consulting and maybe the, maybe it surprisingly came out great. Like, uh, it was, you know, kind of a, a lucky accident or something like that. Yeah. I, um, I mean, there's certain colors that just frustrate me. Like yellow is really frustrating. I think yellow is frustrating for everybody, frankly. Yeah. It's cause not, I didn't realize that. that my first time airbrushing yellow, the whole model was green. <laughs> oh, like it was green to start or it came out green. Like, um, you know, it's it's just so thin. And yeah. unless you use a white uh, base, base. Uh, I was using gray. The whole yeah. thing was just like lime green. And I yeah. just, it's like something's wrong, but I can't tell what it is. <laughs> we actually have had a lot of debates about yellow internally because it's it's such a ch- challenging color to work with. But I'm with you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have certain steps that I do for pretty much every color. And, you know, I, I do variations of each thing. Sure. I, I have a way of doing it to where I'm on autopilot with pretty much everything. Um, as far as blending, I feel like my blends sometimes are a little bit smoother than other people's just because I just can see it so much more intensely. Sure. That, uh, I could see that. And I, I work on it a little bit more. So That's great. Um, okay. So, um, so no real limitations and maybe in fact, um, other than sort of needing some guidance in the beginning, um, so it sounds like once you kind of find what we like to call recipes, you, you probably stick to those pretty closely. I mean, if you find that this combination works very well, you know, why deviate? Um, or do you like to experiment and try new things out? Well, like I have six red paints okay. starting from dark up to light. And okay. I use variations of them from dark to light always. Okay. So, you know, things like that. I only have a, a certain amount of each color to, to play with that nice. way. I, I don't get myself messed up. Sure, sure. That makes perfect sense. So by limiting yourself that way, and in fact, I think all of us could learn something from that. Like one of the things we've learned over time is that by limiting our palettes a little bit, we actually get generally faster because we're not comparing 40 paints. We're comparing 10 paints. And then that right. allows us to make the best, the quickest choice possible that gets us close to what we want. Because there's just well, so a many. A lot of people have to make like folders of their step-by-step process for different sure. armies they've yeah. done. And mine, I, if it's yellow, I'm going to do it that same way, unless someone requests something else. Sure. And I got to figure out how to get to that. 
So um, if someone wants to see great examples of your work, how do they go about, now that Shades of Grey is no longer um, in, in active um, in active service, now that you're a full-time commission painter for Frontline, how would they find examples of your work? Where can they find your work? How can they find out more about you? Hmm. That's kind of difficult because I'm kind of computer dumb. Okay. So I don't have a lot of stuff on the internet. Okay. Um, I mean, the Frontline portfolio is good, but we we have enough painters to where I'm not featured on there. You know, sure. We, so um, there's a lot of stuff on there, but we don't put our names on there just so it's, you know, it's not unfair towards any other artist. Well, maybe what I'll uh, do is um, I can put up, like, maybe I'll ask if it's okay if I put up one of your photos on the podcast so that they can, people can just see that they're, hey, we're not lying, guys. This is, this is absolutely his work. And, um so. Sure, and then my Facebook, I believe, is pretty much open to the public for awesome. photos. And okay, I put everything I paint on there. That's great. So we'll link to that so people can actually see the work. Are you um, available for private commission, or are you only available through Frontline? I'm really only taking private commissions through people that um, I had before I switched to Frontline. And oh, okay, that, you know, didn't want to go through Frontline; just specifically wanted to go through me. So there's only a couple of those left. Otherwise. I prefer really just to go through Frontline. Okay. So if someone wants to commission a model through you, really they should reach out to Frontline Gaming through their commission page and say, um, and sort of reach out to you there possibly. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of clients that will request certain artists. Oh, okay. So, great. So they get, yeah, they get used to their styles and colors. something you want. We have a lot of great artists. So. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, I mean, Brandon, it, it still continues to um, blow me away that, that you're such a such an amazing such a fast painter considering the fact that you can't see color the way we can uh and in fact in some ways it seems like you have some some preternatural advantages there so i'm jealous in a few ways but but i think it's just a, a real testament to your love of the hobby that you haven't let it hold you down at all i mean if anything it's empowered you oh yeah i mean i went to a convention and did a speed painting competition and uh I started painting the model in whites. Yeah. And people looked over and saw how far I had gotten on the whites. And I had three people actually stand up and quit. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That is pretty funny. Wow. <laughs> they were outmatched, outclassed, and outgunned. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Brandon, thank you very much for your time today. You've been very generous with it. We'll have links to his. Uh, we'll have links to the Frontline Gallery, and if we can, we'll have a link to one of his specific photos. Check out his Facebook page. Check out his work on FrontlineGaming.org. dot um, And um, thank you very much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you. And guys, hang on. We'll be right back after this brief word. If you're interested in advertising on War Council, let us know. We can be reached at warcouncil at whitemetalgames.com. Rates are extremely competitive, but there are limited slots available, so please contact us soon. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump into our one-minute rant or gush tonight, um, which is really more like a ten-minute rant or gush most nights. It's like kind of we go on and on about (laughs) it. Um, But uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a couple different things. Um, We actually have multiple people that want to talk. We want to rant and or gush tonight. So uh, I'm going to kick it off. Um, Fall's in the air, and um, because of that change of seasons, a lot of times when you think about fall, you think about 
Uh, for me, I think about fall basing. I think about how I'm going to base my models to make them look like the season. Um, so I'm going to link you guys to an article on Reaper. It's the Craft 24. Reaper has a whole series of articles, which to be fair are not widely supported. They haven't really done much with them in the last few years. But um, back when they first kicked them off, those articles still exist. And the 24th in that series had to do with um, basing your models for fall. And um, basically the big challenge with basing fall models is leaves, is how do you create leaves? And there's been lots of different opinions on it. But the common logic is you take birch seeds, which um, are from a plant, a tree in Japan. I think the birch tree is out of Japan, I want to say. and Maybe not. Maybe, sure. I, I, I believe that's where it's from. Uh, so the birch seeds, um, specifically when you sort of crumple them down, uh, the smallest filament of those seeds look like teeny tiny leaves, which... Um, conveniently scale to 28 millimeters. Um, so by mixing those leaves, or those seeds rather, with paint, you can create various shades of birch seeds. You know, reds, greens, whatever. Um, so this article kind of walks you through that, how cheap it is. Um, I bought some birch seeds from an international retailer a few months ago. It didn't cost me much, less than 10 bucks, and I got enough seeds for probably 100 models. So, I mean, the reality is, like, they're cheap to achieve. They're easy to achieve. Um, so if you're looking for a fall theme... There's nothing that really to stop you now that you have this information intact. I mean, yeah. when you think about like Sylvaneth that just came out, yeah. you know, they're the logical choice for this. I mean, they're trees. So yeah. depending on whether you want to do winter Sylvaneth, spring Sylvaneth, or fall Sylvaneth, um, this is how I would go with it. I would, I would use birch seeds and I would put them everywhere. I'd put them on the tree. I'd put them on the base. I'd you know, put them all over the place. Of course. Yeah. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for me. Uh, let's, uh, Philip, what do you want to rant or gush about tonight? Well, I was going to talk about, so, um, I picked up some of these rolling pins from uh, Green Stuff World, and they're basically they have uh, laser engraved designs in them. So you can get like cobblestone, you can get uh, brick. They've got uh, triangle mesh. So really, tons of different patterns, um, and we've actually been using them for some of the basing that we've been doing. So it's a great way to get quick basing effects. Essentially, mm-hmm. you can build on top of them. You just basically layer up, find a um, a medium like putty or uh, magic sculpt, something that you can. Carve. So you could use, and by medium, I think what he means is like a two-part epoxy. But mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be epoxy. It could be like you've been using this. Um, what's that stuff called? Water sculpt. We or? used a water putty mm-hmm. uh, that we bought from Home Depot. Um, but yeah, you can use really anything that would that's going to hold its shape and dry out, so that you can it'll hold the shape of the design. I mean, green stuff is essentially the most common example of this. Mm-hmm. People, everyone has green stuff in their box for the most part. Um, but essentially these little rolling pins allow you to roll out, like you said, a pattern. Yeah. So paver, stone, cobblestone, hex, whatever. You can do it, apply it to your bases. You can do it over a board, whatever you want to do. So you know what else would be good for is if you're building a building, you could roll out patches of like, um, what do they call that? When you look at a building and some of the, the outer exterior has chipped away and it shows the brick beneath that. What do they call that? Um, I know what you're talking about, but but, but it'd be an easy way to do that. Yeah. And you could essentially create little brick sections, clip them out glue them on the building and then cover them up and cover it up blend it in a little bit off. to show the chips yep. and then that would be a natural way to do it in theory it'd be a 3d effect as opposed to what should yeah. be a yeah so it'd be cool very nice so, yeah you way to do that um and another uh product that they actually sell are leaf cutters like oh. leaf punches mm-hmm. so you can stick like a piece of paper in there it punches out a leaf to the scale that you want that's pretty great um, or just, i think they have like 20 millimeter scale but that's another way to get leaves too just uh and you wouldn't have to wait for them to ship from japan yeah, <laughs> or wherever you get them from. Oh, I'd have to get them from Europe. Yeah, I think they should from Europe. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, that was it for me. All right. 
I'm actually going to uh, gush a little bit about well, what you and uh, Val did. All right, all right. Because <laughs> uh, I've made uh, several um, boards, display boards, before in the past, and I know how hard they can be. They can um, be a lot. They can be a lot of work. And uh, see it in person, I mean, the photos look amazing, but if you see it in person, the, the photos don't even give it justice that it deserves. It's hard to capture it, the it whole really thing. It really is. Any I mean, time you take a photo, because yeah. you look at a photo, and you're like, oh, well, that miss that it doesn't look but when you get up close you don't even see half the stuff because the camera is way better than our eyes yeah we get the, i get this comment all the time from people that things that we paint look better in person than they do in photos and i think that that's like you said like the the camera is completely indiscriminate oh, yeah. like it just captures everything every mistake as well as every triumph yeah. whereas your eye only picks up the basics yeah so it has so many more things to focus on when there's something 3d in front of you mm-hmm. it's perceiving all of those things okay. so you're taking in the whole not the details yeah. until you start to take in the details mm-hmm. so yeah i think as a whole it, it was i mean it, it's different seeing it in person mm-hmm. and i do love that you guys made it modular and you made the yeah. pieces separate mm-hmm. Uh, that was you, a, got, you got terrain now yeah. if you want to play yeah. a game just take it off and set it on the table which right. you can use yeah and you like almost like two that's right yeah i mean that was by design like we wanted it to be both shippable i mean easy for shipping because one of the things i learned the first couple demo boards i did is that when i took them to game stores they immediately got broke (laughs) because what happens is when they're not on the table they set them naturally they set them upright which means that the train is jutting out Mm -hmm. so it's not very hard to bump into that i bump Mm -hmm. into shit in my house all the time so you bump into a couple things and it just immediately detaches. So to get around that modular terrain was the natural solution, I think. Plus transportation can be a pain in the ass. Right. So yeah. being able to just put it in a box and stack mm-hmm. on top of each other. And these guys travel all over yeah. the world. Some of these guys are tournament players that travel yeah. abroad. They travel yeah. across the country. They travel on airplanes. Well, most of them actually do. Uh, I'm a, I've traveled, um, let's see, Georgia. Well, I'm going to be going up. To, yeah. Um, Mini Wargaming. Gaming. I've, I've traveled several states. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the guys that I talk to fly. And the modular terrain could actually fit into a big suitcase. Like mm-hmm. the, the terrain board, now that it's modular, could you could easily fit it into a big suitcase. Wrap up your terrain pieces, let's say in t-shirts or clothes or whatever, and uh, the boards would be pretty pretty protected in, in a nice suitcase. Yeah. Um, and even if you don't want to do that, you can ship them. Like you could ship it to your destination, pick it up at the hotel. I know some people do that. It'd be expensive, but yeah. it's it's definitely possible. And I can say it'd be expensive because I shipped the board. And I don't know how much it cost to ship, uh, but it is by far the cheaper option the way we did it. I mean, even as expensive as that was, it was still cheaper. So I'm curious how you. So you have a scale that you weigh everything before you ship it. How did you? How did you weigh that box? Well, I mean, the scale scales up to 400 pounds. Okay. So, it's just so small. I just yeah. imagine this massive thing on top of that tiny little scale. Well, yeah, <laughs> and the box was 26 by 26, and the scale is only about a foot wide. Mm-hmm. But essentially, like, the weight should be balanced correctly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I, haven't, I haven't actually checked with the client yet to see if he received it, but he should have received it by now. So um, I'll, have to, I'll have to check in. Normally, if I don't hear anything, that's a good sign. Yeah. Like, I always, if there's a damage, I hear about it. If there's a holdup in UPS or if it's a holdup in, in, in uh, customs, I hear about it. But if it's just, if they received it and they like it, I don't hear anything. So that's normally a good <laughs> sign. Yeah. So, well, Evan, as a guest today, do you have anything you'd like to rant or gush about? Uh, no. Okay, I would, very good. I would like to uh, thank you guys for including me on this uh, little... So you're gushing about the being in the moment in the moment. Yeah. Nice. I appreciate the opportunity to come check out the studio and to learn from you guys. And, and I did not pay him to say that. He's being honest about that. And this was not arranged before the podcast. He slipped him a $5. Although you'll never know, will you? Yeah, I mean, I, I could be lying about that. So, All right, well, um, and it's it's good to have you. It's yeah, good to have a mentee. I mean, 
I mean, I think the nice thing about this is that, that, like, in the same way that people on YouTube share videos and that sort of thing, I think that sharing what we do is helpful. It helps people learn about it, and, mm-hmm. and it only carries it only curries favor. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, word of mouth, in my opinion, is still the best advertising. Um, so essentially, you know, you'll go home and tell all your friends, and they'll tell their friends, and so on and so on, and you know, that kind of stuff. So, all right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to jump back in with our outro, and we'll be right back after this. Let's be honest, you'd rather be playing than painting. Let White Metal Games take the hassle out of painting and assembling your miniatures. We have a team of dedicated professionals who will make sure your miniatures stand out on the tabletop. Contact us at info at whitemetalgames.com. White Metal Games. Put your minis where your mouth is. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump into our outro tonight. We are out of here for the evening. Um, next time on the podcast, we're going to be talking about business mentoring. Uh, for all of you would-be commission artists out there, we're going to tell you about how to get in touch with us, how to learn from us, um, and what it costs, frankly. I mean, what we charge for those sorts of rates. Cheaper than you might think um, to learn from um, industry professionals. Um, at this point, I would say that we are we're doing pretty well, I think, overall as a business. It's been a good year. We're on track to yeah. uh, to to certainly be one of the bigger ones on the East Coast. Um, now that Kenny's gone West, like we're, <laughs> we're kind of the biggest one on the West East Coast, maybe. I think so. Um, yeah. So pretty good. Um, so we'll be talking about that. And as always, we're interested in hearing what you guys want to know about on the podcast. You can email us at info at whitemetalgames.com. Um, tell us about the guests you'd like, who you'd like us to talk to, topics you'd like us to cover. Check us out on iTunes. You can find a link directly from the White Metal Games podcast page. Um, you can also follow us on iTunes to get all of the updates right on your phone. Um, and please leave us a review. If you are a reviewer, we will uh, offer you 3% off labor on commissions uh, on your next commission for review. So kind of a quid pro quo. It helps us spread the word about the podcast, which in turn lends us more, more credibility, more clients. So we will quid pro quo it back to you by giving you a slight <laughs> discount on your labor. Um, so uh, in fact, we have one client in-house right now. He was a podcast listener. Now he's a client. Um, and he's on his second commission now. What project? So, uh, well, the new project, the old project was a towel project that I did, kind of a Vorla Sept alternate. Uh, the new project is going to be an orc helicopter, Sweet. which I'm very excited oh, about. Yeah, kind of a war copter. So that one actually just got set up in the last 24 hours. Um, so that'll be kind of fun, kind of different. So I'll, anytime someone says, like, do you want to build something orky? I'm like, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I will build whatever that is. <laughs> so, okay. Well, that's it for now. Um, my name is Caleb Dillon with White Metal Games. I'm Phil Corman with White Metal Games. Danny Franks, White Metal Games. I'm Evan Strong, and I'm still just visiting. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, put your minis where your mouth is. Mm-hmm.